Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This evening, at 6 p.m., right here on this radio station, you'll be able to hear the 2004 State of the Union message as spoken by the current President of the United States. In today's edition of Radio Curious, we will visit with the former Chief White House speechwriter for President Bill Clinton. Michael Waldman, our guest today, is an expert on the public presidency. He wrote or edited nearly 2,000 speeches, including several of President Clinton's State of the Union speeches. Michael Waldman is the author of My Fellow Americans, the most important speeches of America's presidents from George Washington to George W. Bush. In this program, we will anticipate President Bush's remarks this evening at 6 p.m. in this annual State of the Union address to the people of the United States. I spoke with Michael Waldman from his office in New York City and began by asking him how he first became involved in politics. For me, as probably is the case for most people, it was in the crib. My parents were very interested in politics. They met at a 1952 cocktail party for Adlai Stevenson, who was running for president that year. So I guess it was preordained that I would be involved and interested. I was not really a politician. I was a consumer advocate and writer. And in 1992, I went to work for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. You jumped a big section of your life from when your parents met until you moved into the White House. I was very precocious. <laughs> right. Uh, but what was your childhood experience like in politics, with politics at the dinner table every day? Well, I was born in 1960. So, of course, the tumultuous events of the 1960s were at the outskirts of my awareness. And then I became more and more aware. And I do remember, for example, every Thursday, the body count on television from Vietnam and knowing about that and knowing about what had gone on and helping give out leaflets for Hubert Humphrey for president and things like that. And I think about my own kids who also are more aware than I wish they were of things like terrorism and and war. I think it makes you a more political person when you realize early on that things really matter and also things can be pretty interesting. I grew up in the suburbs of New York and I had an experience that I think a lot of people had We think of the 60s as being this time of great change and turmoil. But if you look at, say, a high school yearbook from the 60s as opposed to the 70s, you see that for a lot of America, the real change didn't happen until the 70s. And growing up where I grew up, there was tremendous political turmoil in the 70s around school board issues, around politics, Nixon's impeachment, and all those kinds of things. There was always a lot going on, and I was very lucky to be able to have a family that took interest in it talked about it with me, watched it together on the news and that sort of thing. Let's talk about the work that you did in the White House and specifically the speeches that you wrote for President Clinton. Who drove the topics for those speeches? Were you assigned topics? Were you given a choice? Or is it left to your imagination? No, it generally wouldn't be left to the imagination of the speechwriter. That's a recipe for imaginary speeches. Or perhaps insurrection. (laughs) Unless you guess exactly right of what the president wants. Or perhaps a palace coup. Exactly. In our case, Clinton was very personally involved in the speeches, whether it was the topic, what they were going to say, and everything else. And so, 
For example, I was head speechwriter, and I supervised six other folks from 1995 to 1999. During that time, I would meet with the president at least once a week in a strategy meeting, not just me, but the top political and policy advisors as well. And we would go over, among other things, what he was going to say in the speeches in the upcoming week, how they fit in the legislative strategy and everything else. Then we would send him drafts and Sometimes he would rewrite them, or sometimes we would meet with him before he delivered them to go over what he was going to say. He was not somebody who would stand there and read what was handed to him. So very often it was as much what he wound up writing in between the lines of what we wrote or in the margins based on his grilling of me or of other people about what the policies were, what the facts were, that would turn it into what he ultimately said. For something like a State of the Union address, this big speech every year, President Bush is preparing to give one. It's required by the Constitution. And Clinton used it in a very hefty way as a way to organize and put out his policies for the whole year. That's one of the reasons they were so long. But he would spend upwards of a month doing very little else but working on that speech before he delivered it. Was there ever much deviation of what was written from what was said? Would you believe me if I said no? Uh, No, Clinton deviated uh, quite a bit. Uh, It's not so much that he didn't read what was given to him as that he would add to it. If he was going to give a 30-minute speech, what we would give him would be 15 minutes long. He would double it. I used to tell the speechwriters who worked with me when they would start working that we'd give him Hemingway and he turns it into Faulkner. Sentences would get longer and the inflection more Southern. He was a gifted improviser and very often would find his inspiration maybe shortly before a speech or even at the podium. And so what we wrote for him was very heavy on facts and heavy on arguments and not very heavy on fancy, polished rhetoric. He liked to do that himself. I don't suppose you've had the same ability to look at George Bush's speechwriting processes as you had with Clinton, but give us some of your observations from listening to the final product or the spoken product. It's true, of course, that I don't sneak into the White House at night and help President Bush with his speeches, Uh, but I know some of his speechwriters, and I've heard them talk about the process, and I'm familiar with it, and I think it's very different. Bush, as we all know, is not very fluid with words when he's talking off the cuff. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of his formal speeches have been very powerful. He has a tremendously talented speechwriter named Michael Gerson, who President Bush trusts quite a lot. Gerson also has a policy background rather than a purely writing background. Gerson also shares with President Bush a a deeply religious Christianity, which, of course, you can hear infused in his speeches. The speeches read very well, and they're often delivered well. It is pretty clear that Bush does not personally get heavily involved in the writing of them. How do we know that? The White House itself has made that clear. Even in articles that they allowed, for example, they allowed a New York Times reporter to be with the speechwriters as they were writing President Bush's very powerful speech that he delivered to Congress after September 11th. And he mostly communicated through Karen Hughes, his communications aide, who knew Bush's style. And the key thing when you're a speechwriter is understanding what it is that your boss is going to want. You're not writing for your own voice. You're not writing for yourself. You're trying to help a president communicate. And so by all accounts, he's less involved. But I think his speeches are frequently quite powerful. 
Having said that, remember last year's State of the Union, where the White House eventually had to withdraw probably the central claim, the most explosive charge made against Saddam Hussein in the whole speech, which was that he was in the process of obtaining uranium, uh, enriched uranium, for making an atomic bomb. And really quite a bit of the rest of that speech has turned out as a factual matter in terms of the talk about weapons of mass destruction, just hasn't turned out to be true. And I think that there's some plausibility to the idea that the president didn't know what was in the speech. He just does not sweat those details as much. So everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And I think from my perspective, that's a weakness of his. Considering those weaknesses and the 2003 State of the Union message, what do you anticipate we will hear in the 2004 State of the Union message on January 20th? Well, I think we can probably expect not to hear quite as much about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction this time. Um, he has changed the argument to an argument that has got some real appeal about democracy and the positive impact throughout the whole Middle East of building a democracy in Iraq. I think we can expect to hear a lot more talk about that. He's got three big tasks in this State of the Union. One is he's going to want to set a positive tone. He's going to want to argue that the glass is half full rather than half empty. And he's had some good news lately, which certainly makes that easier for him. Presidents running for re-election always have to face a choice of whether they show people they understand the problems in the country or show people that they're confident and try and convince them that things are great. It just generally is the case that, as a political matter, you're better off being confident than showing you understand people's anxiety. The second thing that he's got to do is lay out an agenda that can be his campaign agenda for the second term. He has had a lot of success pushing some big ideas, whether it's his foreign policy or huge tax cuts, much bigger than people had expected at the outset. And he needs to have an agenda to talk about what he's going to do next. The problem is that words are free, but if you want to actually pay for programs, you have to pay for them. And he may run into some budget constraints as he looks for a big idea. Particularly considering that he has changed the budget surplus from the Clinton days into the greatest deficit our country has ever seen. It was a lot easier writing a State of the Union when, as Bill Clinton did in 1998 and 99, you can announce a balanced budget and a big surplus. It's harder for President Bush, though I'm guessing there's been recently a sense that the projected deficit is going to be a bit smaller than they had feared several months ago because the economy is picking up steam. And if I were advising him, I would make a lot out of that and say we're on the path back to a balanced budget without getting into too many details. The third thing I think he does have to do is he does have to put the Iraq crisis and the Iraq occupation in some context for people so that his view of how to judge success is going to be the view that people use. Do you foresee a context? I think that presidents are unique in a way in that they sometimes get to write the exam that they're graded on. And one example from Bill Clinton, which I'm happy to say I did not have anything to do with, um, was in 1994 when he was pressing Congress to pass universal health insurance coverage. You may remember he stood there and he said that he would veto any plan that was not universal coverage. Well, you never should issue a veto like that. It set himself up for failure. Even if Congress passed the most far-reaching health reforms in a generation, Clinton would have deemed it a failure. So I think that we can expect the president to say something about 
what we're doing in Iraq and how long will we be doing it. I think if he just gets up there and says, as he has said, this is a front in the battle against terror and the dictator is gone and that sort of thing, I think that people will feel that he hasn't answered their very real questions. I'd like to take a moment and say that we're talking on this edition of Radio Curious with Michael Waldman, a New York City attorney who is a former White House chief speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and also the author of a compendium of speeches of America's presidents, a book called My Fellow Americans. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Michael, looking at the Bush presidency, do you see or can you tell us your observations of an ideological agenda that is being pushed by the president in areas that are not specifically included in the State of the Union or other public addresses that he gives? I think that when George Bush ran for president, he ran in a way almost like the way Clinton ran when he ran in 1992. Bush said, I'm a different kind of Republican. I'm not the Republicans that you're used to. I'm a compassionate conservative. And he won over a lot of people who felt that he was going to be sort of a moderate force. And I think that he has, in fact, partly because of circumstances, he has governed with a great deal of audacity, a very ambitious policy agenda, some of which you can't really tell from his speeches. I think there's a difference between his foreign policy in that sense and his domestic policy. In his foreign policy, he has set out very explicitly a very sweeping new doctrine for the United States. He said it in his speeches. He said it through his actions. They call it the preemption policy. The United States, now after September 11th era, has taken on itself the, the right to intervene even preemptively, even before danger is imminent, as they say, if we think that the threat is there potentially to the United States. Uh, it's a real change from many years of, of institution building and alliances that even his father, for example, was involved in. And you do hear that in his speeches. If we look at the domestic policy and we examine the Patriot Act, there is no uh, or hardly any opportunity for a person who deals in anything but a cash economy to keep privacy of his or her records. Well, in the domestic economy, you're right. He's got a fairly dramatically conservative policy agenda, but he doesn't talk about it. As you said before, he has changed the fiscal position of the country pretty dramatically. We went at the beginning of his term from record surpluses. Now we've got record deficits. The tax cuts and a number of other proposals really have had the impact, not necessarily of crippling the ability of government to pay for itself today, but I think really hurting the ability of government to pay for itself tomorrow and down the road. And you don't hear him talk that way. His words about domestic policy are very soothing, in contrast to his foreign policy, where he's laid it out on the table a lot more. But the reality is in the budget rather than in his rhetoric. And there are a lot of issues like privacy, like the impact of computers and technology, like the environment, that are cutting-edge issues where the administration doesn't do very much or just kind of carries the ball for whatever the most powerful interests are. And I think that's not a surprise. That's probably a partisan point that I'm making. But I think that you don't hear a lot about consumer protection or individual privacy in these speeches. Well, when you say the administration doesn't do very much, are you really saying that the administration doesn't say very much when they are not involved in the data collection that can be obtained with the use of computers? 
of course, the data collection is happening. In the wake of September 11th, there's a lot of ways in which the government is collecting the data, as well as private companies, and from health insurance to others. But you just don't hear him talk about those kind of issues very much. You won't likely hear him talk about it much in the State of the Union. They have tended to keep the discussion of domestic issues pretty general, and I don't think that's going to change for this speech. But they're still somewhat fervent in the concept of the administration's policy. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think that in saying this I'm making a partisan point. This administration has been far bolder than I think anybody expected, both domestically and in foreign policy. Far more willing to think big. And whether that's good or bad really depends on whether you agree with the policies. And I think that one lesson for Democrats, if they should ever get back in, is that there is an advantage to boldness in policy terms. I sometimes do think that there's built-in advantages for gravity, there's sort of laws of political gravity, and I think it's harder in some ways for Democrats when they're in to be as bold because sometimes the forces they're running up against are much more powerful. In May of 2003, there was a New Yorker magazine interview with Karl Rove in which one of the theses asserted was that the current administration wants to make fundamental changes in how America is and compared those changes to what Franklin Roosevelt did in the 30s during the Depression. What's your take on that? and Karl Rove's relationship to the administration's policies. Karl Rove is a person with a lot of historic sense and a big strategic sense and a lot of ambition for George Bush, and not just getting into office, but changing the political dynamic. They want to change the natural order of American politics, which since the New Deal, for several decades, it favored the Democrats and Since then, it's been kind of a a tie. They are hoping to usher in a long-term, strong era of Republican dominance. They're closer, certainly, than it would have appeared likely that they would have been on election night in 2000, when, among other things, George Bush got fewer votes than he was expecting. They thought they were going to win handily. He didn't win the popular vote and eventually become president after the Supreme Court decision over the Electoral College. And the fact is that Karl Rove wants this to be a transforming presidency. Rove is an interesting figure. I don't know him. I know some people who know him who think highly of him on a personal basis. He is one of the more powerful presidential aides in recent memory. He is a figure that you see sometimes in American history. Colonel Edward House would be an example for Woodrow Wilson, or Mark Hanna for President McKinley, or Harry Hopkins for Franklin Roosevelt in that he is a top political aide. He is through and through, foremost, a political, hard-fought, brass-knuckles political advisor. But he has a tremendous role in policy. I'll give you one example of, at least as I could see, a difference in the way the administration's functioned. The issue of steel tariffs. As we know, President Bush, although talking about free trade, raised tariffs on steel imports early in his term. And this was by all press accounts, due to Karl Rove and his role in pushing for this. The Clinton administration, when the same tariffs were raised as a possible issue, and there the lead voice was Bob Rubin, the Treasury Secretary, who made it quite clear that he thought it was bad economic policy. I mean, he came close to saying he would, he would walk away if they were raised. 
But the idea that a political advisor in the White House would get the tariffs raised would have seemed really implausible. There was a time when Dick Morris, as you know, who was a powerful political advisor to Clinton with a lot of policy impact, Morris was around for a few years, and there was a lot of creativity and tension because it was always Morris pushing ideas and then the policy experts kind of pushing back. But nobody in years has had the kind of political and policy sway of Karl Rove. What's his direction? I think that he is looking to create a long-term Republican majority in the country. I think in some instances that means bigger government, and in some instances that means starving the government of resources through the tax cuts. I don't think it's necessarily going to be clear what the outcome is going to be until probably much later. Let's look now at the opponents to President Bush, the several Democratic candidates. What are your thoughts? The one thing to remember is that very few people sound like a president or look like a president before they're president. Charitably, that's a fair statement. The primaries thus far, I mean, watching these debates with 10 people standing there is just painful to watch. There's no way to rise above that. And I think also in our era, it's very pictorially driven. A person has to really look like a president to be able to be elected. That's probably right. I think that some of the candidates have had tremendous strengths. In many ways, one of those who didn't expect that much out of Howard Dean and have been tremendously impressed by the vitality of his campaign, the way he has used the Internet as a transforming political organizing tool, the enthusiasm of his supporters. And when you hear Howard Dean talk, he sounds like a real person talking rather than a politician sort of intoning very careful language. On the other hand, it sounds to me like he's got few unexpressed thoughts, as James Carville said. He sounds like he's very taken with his own straight-talking reputation, and he sort of says whatever comes into his head. And he's saying things now that are just a gift to his opponents in the Democratic primaries, but also should he be the nominee to the White House, to the Republicans. As I said, you don't seem presidential till you're president, but he's got to get a lot more serious about what he says if he really wants to carry the Democratic flag. I think some of the other candidates have some strengths that Dean doesn't have. Well, Michael, as well as being experienced in the current presidential history, you've collected the speeches of America's presidents in your book, My Fellow Americans. What prompted you to do that? I have always loved history, and when I was working in the White House, I came to realize just how much you could learn from it. One day, I was writing a State of the Union address, and I asked someone in my office, go to the bookstore and buy the book of great presidential speeches. And they came back empty-handed. There really wasn't a collection like that that you could go buy. And these are the speeches that are often the way we narrate our own history to ourselves. They're the ones we remember where we were when we heard them, whether it's December 7th, 1941, or the Challenger explosion, or September 11th. What I've pulled together are the texts of what I think are the 43 most important presidential speeches. Also, I've written essays explaining the background, what the presidents were trying to do. We have a lot of photographs and a lot of manuscripts, and we have two audio CDs with the actual voices of every president going back to Benjamin Harrison. And, of course, for the great speeches from the 20th century, we've got the speeches themselves, whether it's Roosevelt or Eisenhower or Kennedy or Reagan or whomever. What's the point, or what is it that you hope to share with this book? 
first off, I think I wanted to share what I think is just a tremendously rich and dramatic and emotionally powerful history that our country has. Another thing I think is that you can really learn a lot about what we should expect from a president. We are facing tough times, but so did Lincoln, so did Roosevelt. And one thing that they were able to do was to take whatever the crisis was of that time and use it to talk about our highest ideals. You really can hear a dialogue among these presidents from George Washington forward about what it means to be an American, what we think about issues like race or our place in the world or the role of government especially. What do you hear beginning with George Washington as spoken by the presidents as to what it means to be an American? Well, it's interesting. The very first speech given by any president was, of course, George Washington's first inaugural. There couldn't have been one before that. And he talks about, as he says, an American experiment. The idea, even then, they knew, they put out the idea that there'd been self-governing republics before, but they'd failed. And whether this one succeeded or not was really in our hands. It was an experiment. And you hear that same idea over and over again. Think of Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address saying that we're testing. The Civil War was a test of whether or not a country that was dedicated to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, of equal opportunity, could survive. You hear the same sort of thing in Roosevelt, and you hear it in Reagan and Clinton and Bush in all different kinds of ways. It's as if it's a bunch of different composers meditating on the same theme there's almost a musical quality to it. And you can learn a lot, I think, also from a book like this and the audio part, too, sort of how to be a great communicator. It's not enough to just try and touch people emotionally and get them boo-hooing. These speeches had a lot of big ideas, and I think that's important for politicians today to remember. Michael Waldman, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, that's a tough one. I read a lot, and I love to read. A recent book that I've read was actually a novel by Gore Vidal, who is, of course, a controversial fellow, but he's written some very interesting novels about American history. And I read the book he wrote on Aaron Burr. It was about 20 years ago. It's a very kind of sly view of the early American history from the perspective of maybe the most disreputable founding father. But it does remind us that from the very beginning of the country, there's been a lot of politics and politics. Michael Waldman, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Michael Waldman is the author of My Fellow Americans, the most important speeches of America's presidents from George Washington to George W. Bush, and a former White House chief speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, The book he recommends is Gore Vidal's book about Aaron Burr. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 
5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.